Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Houston, Texas, the most beautiful city in the world. It's just awesome to be with you tonight. I want to promise you this evening is a money-back guarantee that you're going to absolutely love our guest tonight. And you're going to want to go ahead and log into Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever, wherever you get a great book, because we have a book recommendation for you that you're going to want to start reading this very evening. I promise you that. Hey, what, I had a great week this week. Had an opportunity to go right downtown, right down uh, this street here, uh, to go down to by the George R. Brown Convention Center in downtown Houston and spoke at a probably the most wonderful conference that I have been at all year. Uh, it was a creating trauma-sensitive classrooms, and it was an absolutely uh, wonderful experience. Met some wonderful people. I believe got 18 different uh, new speaking uh, engagements from that one conference. The room was packed. It was just fantastic. And I uh, want to welcome all those friends uh, that I met uh, this past week in Houston from around the country, from Connecticut, Miami, uh, from from Canada. I know uh, he's on tonight. And there's so many other people that, that were there at the conference that were just wonderful uh, and it was a great experience to have uh, that opportunity to visit with them, share with them, and get to know them. That's what it's all about. Um, tell you what, before we uh, get on, I want to make sure that you watch next week. Next week is going to be uh, a lady that I've already pre-recorded the interview. And anybody that knows me, I don't do that very often, but they couldn't come on uh, because of the time issue being in Connecticut. Uh, they go to bed apparently uh, earlier than that or take care of their children to go to bed earlier than that. And uh, I went ahead and interviewed them and recorded it. And I'm just going to tell you the power of that interview is phenomenal. And you're going to want to watch next week's program, uh, 8 o'clock Central Time Live, uh, that we go live and then we're going to go right into the pre-recorded program. Uh, next week. But um, before we welcome our guest in this evening, and I just saw her walk into the room about 18 minutes or 18 seconds ago. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of making sure that she has caught her breath. But um, I always like to start off the program with just a thought of what's going on in my world or maybe yours or somebody that I ran into or counseled with online uh, or on via phone or via email. Um, I want to let you know that it's okay to allow yourself to put your heart 
on a leash. I think sometimes we let our boundaries down so we can let people in when they don't agree with our boundaries. And just because your heart some sometimes wants to do something that it's not wise sometimes to always pursue that or allow your heart to do it. I think you deserve to write your own boundaries, stick to those boundaries. And I want to be honest with you. I think the only people that get upset that you have boundaries are the ones that are benefiting from you not having any. And I don't know if you caught that or not, but I think that's important. And I think it's important also to not allow yourself to be put on and set on fire just to keep somebody else warm. That's not your duty. You have to protect your own heart, your own values, your own life, your own world sometimes, because if you don't, who will? And setting boundaries is a simple way not sometimes so simple, but it's a way for caring for yourself, for taking care of yourself. It doesn't make you mean. It doesn't make you selfish. It doesn't make you uncaring because I don't do things your way. It means I care about myself too. And that's important. And boundaries ensure that the consequences of people's actions land squarely on them. And sometimes they won't like that because they wanted to land on you. They'll blame it on you. But it really, when you set boundaries and say, no, I'm not going to allow you to cross that, the consequences fall on them and not you. So you can release yourself from that. And daring to set boundaries is about having the courage to love ourselves even when we risk disappointing somebody else. You're more valuable than that. Count yourself as a treasure. You're a masterpiece. And allow yourself the, the privilege and the security and the safety of putting boundaries around your heart, around your life, around your values, where you feel safe. And I think that's so important. And I have a Brene Brown. I believe she's the one that said this. And the quote goes like this. Healthy boundaries are not walls to block other people out. They are barriers that set us free to love the right people, more importantly, ourselves. And I think that's so important. Allow yourself boundaries. Let boundaries be that, I don't know if you watch. Uh, you bet your life or not from Groucho Mark and the duck falls down. Let boundaries be your secret word uh, this week and the duck will fall down and give you $50 uh, like Groucho used to do. But allow that. Did I just date myself? I believe I did. I probably <laughs> ate myself right there. But allow boundaries to be something that you set and stick to and never ask forgiveness or feel shame or guilt because you stuck to your guns and your own boundaries. That's very, very important. Tonight, if you want to get involved in the conversation, there's a couple ways to do it. We are live on Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page. You can go on there where my sons, uh, I believe in 
Taiwan or Thailand or something over there with the U.S. Army, but he's running the for me over there uh, right now. And you can comment on there or ask a question, or you can talk to the wonderful people right at BBS radio station and they will answer the phone with the radio voice at 888-627-6008, and they will patch you right into our guest tonight, Mary Giuliani. And Mary is uh, not only an awesome author, but she has a 25-year background as a master certified coach. And I have a feeling they're going to be waiting around the corner in the block to be able to talk to her, to have her help them with her own life coaching. Because this book, I've read it twice this week, is absolutely phenomenal. Write this down, and it goes like this. The book is, it's not about food, drugs, or alcohol. It's about healing complex PTSD. Your life will be changed after you read this book. I want to welcome to the program. We'll let you tell her all about her background and all of her accolades and her resume and everything that she's done. I want to welcome to the program tonight, Mary Giuliana. Mary, can you hear me tonight? I can. Fantastic. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. I tell you, that's a heck of a book title. And yes. I would love to have uh, people get on there and make you number one tonight after the show's over. But I just checked. You are number one already tonight in your category. I just checked on Amazon. Congratulations. Yeah. You're yes. number one in one category, number two in the other category, and number three. You got the top three places. So that's just absolutely awesome. Congratulations on the book and the uh, the kickoff and everything's going great, right? Yes, it absolutely is. I'm so thrilled. I, you know, it's been a long journey. Uh, you know, I, I like to say uh, it's like seven years of hard labor and I finally had the baby. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's thrilling to to see that it's resonating for people and that, um, you know, that a lot of people did, that didn't realize like me that they had trauma are recognizing, oh my goodness, I didn't have to have a specific kind of sexual or physical abuse to actually be considered a trauma survivor. So, yes. You know, these are the notes that I have from reading your book. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, I, I have quotes in here that I want to get to. But I, but before I, I blow you out of the water with everything that I want to find out about, tell me what motivated you to write a book. I personally believe everybody's got at least one good book in them. You have yeah. at least one awesome book in you uh, because this is yeah. really, really phenomenal. And I don't say that about everybody's book. Um what what motivated you to actually put that year, time, and energy, blood, sweat, and tears to get this out to the public? Well, what uh, what happened was I had already been on this recovery path for thirty years, you know, so being sober and losing over a hundred pounds and keeping it off and doing a lot of work in um, you know my codependency stuff, and so I had already been on this track, and I was fifty seven years old, and I was. Uh, listening to a recovery podcast and the the podcaster said oh th these are my favorite books for the year and one was called um the body keeps the score brain body body and mind in the healing of trauma and i i've always been a psychology geek so i thought oh well i haven't read anything about trauma and even though i didn't think it would apply to me i thought well you know i'd like to learn more about why these books keep on showing up on bestsellers lists and so i picked up the audible version 
And I'm listening, and it's by Bessel van der Kolk, and I'm listening to this book, and within like maybe the first, I don't know, chapter, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that he's talking about all of these things and that it's applying to me, even though I didn't think I could have trauma. And I'm having epiphany after epiphany realizing I didn't need to have sexual or physical abuse to be considered a, a trauma survivor. Having a, a parent, an alcoholic mom that was uh, raging at my dad on a regular basis for over a decade and being bullied at school for being an overweight kid and, um, you know, just experiencing um, also coming out as a lesbian when I was, you know, 16 in a Catholic high school. That was enough, enough chronic toxic stress for me to have my brain, body, and mind traumatized. And so I was so blown away by it that I, um, after, you know, I don't know, well, first of all, I was like, oh my God, I've got to learn everything I can about this because what at one point during the book, uh, Vanderkolk states, no amount of talk therapy or 12-step or personal growth programs can completely heal trauma. And I'm like, what? You know, that's all I've done really for the past 30 years. And so that's when I realized I needed to get into different types of trauma-based therapies. And so at that point, it was like, okay, if this has happened to me, if, if, if I am just realizing at this age and after having my nose to the ground on personal growth for all these decades, and I never tied in my, my struggle with food, obesity, uh, relationships, trauma, there's gotta be millions of other people. And so I, I felt like it was almost like a moral, I mean, a moral obligation. I needed to share this information because so many people are out there struggling with addiction and obesity and relationships and, you know, blaming themselves and, and just having so much shame over it, not realizing that it was never their fault. You know, of course, it's our responsibility to, to recover, but just knowing that the reasons that you've struggled are not your fault are huge in and of itself. And so um, I just felt uh, a real need that this, this has got to get out there. Yeah, and it's excellently done. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a quote on page 25 that I have right here. I just want to read it. I want to get your reaction. Because when I, go, I don't know if you do this or not. I read an unbelievable amount of books. Yes, and I, I always do. try to find one or two sentences that are vibrating on the page like, wait, the whole book pivots on that. Or the whole yeah, situations yeah. on this. I, I saw this on page 25. Um, this is in the manuscript that you sent me. I'm not for sure it's on page 25 of the actual printed version, but it goes like this. I just had to lay there in the dark and listen to the venom, the rage, the contempt, and the constant banging outside the locked bedroom door for hours, day after day, week after week, year after year. I just had to lie there and take it. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Oh, well, yeah, it, it's, um, uh, with my mother started drinking alcoholically when I was about nine years old. And, um, as her drinking progressed, she would get, uh, and my father had had an affair and he would never really talk about their issues. And so her rage continued at, toward him. And it got to the point where, when he would get home from work at night, she would be so drunk and so angry at him that she, and at, at that point, she, my dad had put a lock on the, on, on their bedroom door because he couldn't sleep because she would go in there and shake him or slap him or try to wake him up. And so, 
even though he was behind the locked bedroom door, she would still rage at him and bang on it. And literally for like, sometimes for three or four hours. And so here I am, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, just having to listen to this and doing anything I could just to stop having to hear this insanity. You know, I had, you know, put my headphones on, try, you know, turn them all the way up. Um, I, you know, would turn the, it, it was just horrible. And it just, it was just the feeling of feeling trapped and having to listen to this insanity. And it was, it was horrible. It was just, it, it felt like I was trapped in the family from hell, which is the name of the first or the second chapter. Yeah. Right. Did the neighborhood, did the friends, did other families know that you were experiencing this or did you grow up in a middle-class, upper middle-class, predominantly white neighborhood and everything seems to be fine and dandy down that street? Well, we did grow up in a pretty, nor you know, average middle-class fam uh, neighborhood and the neighbors knew my mom had a drinking problem, but they didn't know that she would rage at my dad, you know, three or four times a week, every week for many years. Um, it got, you know, at, at a certain point, it, the, there were some, when we moved to another house, there were some neighbors that would complain because they would hear my mom screaming at my dad, you know, one more time. And it was just, it was just horrific. And and what's interesting about this, this kind of being exposed to this kind of emotional violence and there was occasional physical violence where my mom would throw things at my dad or slap him or whatever and of course if the tables had been turned it would have been considered spousal abuse but since my it was my dad that was the object of the abuse it just didn't you know register that way for for people and so um yeah it was just really a feeling of being trapped and and the thing too was there was no one there to soothe me or my sister when, you know, like the next morning or um, or even that night. It was like we were just left to be alone with that that toxic insanity. Yeah. Did you realize at the time that the things that you were enduring and going through uh, had the the grand effect later on in your years, or did, was this just an epiphany that happened uh, just recently? I mean, the last 10, 15 years. When did you well, recognize that, hey, wait, I'm this way because of what happened back there when I was eight or nine or 10? Well, you know, like when I first got into AA and, uh, you know, yeah. Codependence Anonymous and stuff like that, I did recognize that my own problem with alcohol and drugs and relationships you know, I was, it was directly impacted by my upbringing, but I thought it was purely psychological. I had no idea that, well, I had no, no idea that, that there was a trauma I, that I was suffering from a post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I really had uh, no clue that this could be anything other than dealing with the emotional wounds of my past through therapy or, or that sort of thing. So it wasn't really that I knew that I even though yes, I did get a lot of support and help by by doing therapy and, and and getting into recovery, I wasn't healing the trauma piece, which is where it lives in the the body, the nervous system, and um, in the relate in your relationships. And so, no, I didn't, and that's that's why I felt so compelled to write this book. Was there any part of your body, your mind, your any relationship, any part of your life that wasn't affected by that upbringing, by what you had gone through? Well, 
you know, when when you live in it, it's interesting because um, there's a part in the book where I talk about how I didn't realize that physical neglect, which is one of the ACEs, uh, was an ACE for me, which is adverse childhood experiences, until I was almost done writing the book. And the reason I didn't realize that is because, you know, what the, that particular uh, ACE is related to whether you felt protected by your parents or if they were too drunk or hot or too high to take care of you. And um, well, the fact is my mom would load us in the car drunk and be driving us. And, you know, if that's not, you know, feeling like you're protected or that they're too drunk and high to take care of you, I don't know what is, but it was still, it was like the water we swam in. So it's, it, it, that it's a perfect example of how you, you, you don't really have another household to compare it to. So you don't, you know, yes, you think it's abnormal, but you don't think it's something that's going to impact your, your, you know, your whole body and mind and relationships and right. Yeah. Yeah. Another quote you have uh, that goes like this. Uh, I had nowhere to go. No one to call. I got to the point where I felt like I was trapped, trapped in the family from hell. Yep. Yep. And that's exactly what it was like. And, um, you know, I, I, and it got to the point where, and I felt so, so much guilt and shame about this, where I just thought, God, if, I think at this point I was like 14 or 15 and it had been going on for like six or seven years. I thought, God, I think the only thing, the only way that this can end is if my mom would just die, you know? And, you know, if I felt horrible as a child to wish that your mother was dead, but it just felt so overwhelming. And it's like, you know, and, you know, the whole thing too was I had to, we had to get up for school the next morning and, and try to like pull it together for the next day. And, um, you know, and, there was no there there was no one there for us. I mean, there was one family that did take us to an Alateen meeting, which is a, a 12-step group for teenagers. And we went to one meeting and I felt really uncomfortable. And but that was it. Nothing ever happened after that. It was, it was uh this is in the 1970s or late 60s. So it was just, you know, the whole 12-step world was there was a lot of shame and stuff about AA and people just didn't talk a lot about psychological things. Well, and, and you're right. As a matter of fact, back in those days, uh, I remember hearing my dad and mom say things like, what happens in this house stays in this house, and we don't discuss it with anybody, let alone go to uh, sessions outside or talk to a counselor or anything like right. that. Still, you don't do that. Not in this world. Yeah. We, we bought that. We bought that hook, yeah. line, and sinker and never even thought. But you have a thing uh, about 20, 25 pages later in the book that talks about you hitting bottom. And he said, I was strangely proud of the fact that I wasn't in denial about being an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. My denial was about believing my life was manageable. That's huge. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. That's huge. It's a huge life lesson right there. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Well, for me, I got up every day. Well, almost every day I went to yeah. work. Um, you know, so I started drinking alcoholically by the time I was about 17. I, I'd already found enough friends where... They had older brothers or people that could buy us beer and get us pot and stuff. And so I was going to, you know, high school with hangovers. And and uh, and so anyway, by the time I was 21, I was drinking over a 12 pack of beer a day. And um, uh, it was like obvious that I couldn't stop drinking. Um, and my 
my attitude toward my drinking was, okay, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm going to ride it for as long as I can, wow. <laughs> you know? And so, um, it, it's, it, and so that's where I, I came to the realization that it, my denial was that I could manage my life. And, you know, I, I was a functional, somewhat functional alcoholic. I would call in sick probably every maybe two or three times a month on, you know, with hangovers and that sort of thing. And I would um, typically about a few years into my jobs, I would be, be getting put on probation or almost be being put on probation for lack of productivity or calling in sick. And so I would go and find another job before I got fired. So, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just, you know, when, when, when using alcohol is your main way to cope with the, the intense pain and discomfort of living in a, a traumatized brain, body, and mind, the idea of giving it up is rather terrifying. It's like, you know, food and alcohol were like oxygen for me. And um, so the idea of giving it up was, was very, very, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any other coping skills. So, yeah. Did those items become your best friends? Was that the, the way that you dealt? And did you realize that you were dealing with, that you were self-medicating uh, with oh. food or alcohol, uh, maybe pot, maybe some other drugs? Uh, did you realize and did you connect it back to what was no. going on with all? Well, as a child, no. You know, as a ch like I started overeating when I was five, six years old. And I just thought it was normal because I just ate what I wanted. And, and my dad used food to cope. And so I'm sure that I, you know, picked up on that coping style. Um, but for me, you know, from the, I started gaining weight when I was about six, six years old and started getting bullied. And as my weight continued to progress, I just thought there was something wrong with me and it was my own fault, even though I was seven years old. So, you know, even up until my teens and twenties and thirties, you know, our culture, especially our culture, you know, the whole, uh, sort of cult, well 50% of our population believe addiction is a choice and uh there's a lot of stigma and shame about people that can't control their weight or their food so i just thought i was weak and a failure and i didn't really tie it into my upbringing until i got sober and went to aa and then i went to overeaters anonymous as well and then i was like oh okay so you know that was my medication that was my anesthesia that was and for me, it was my, my food was my best friend because what I really got in touch with was food was that soothing solution for me when my mom couldn't be. And, um, and so, you know, um, you know, and then when she start tried to take it away from me and started putting me on diets, it was like, oh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> and then, and then as soon as I started, uh, when I was 15, 16 and had my first drink, it was like, oh my God, it was an over-the-top physical, emotional sensation that was like a peak experience. It, it was like, this feels better than I've ever felt. I've got to get more of this. And even though I knew my mom was, you know, an alcoholic and it probably ran in the family, the the relief and the euphoria that I experienced the first few times drinking were so intense. And provided so much, uh, and I had friends that I partied with, and I felt connected. And um, even though I knew it was a huge risk, it was heaven for me. So there was no way I was going to give it up. Now there's there's a huge um, 
elephant in the room when you said that with the euphoria that you experienced with the drinking and having a traumatized mind or brain that is experiencing that intake of alcohol. Because that's one thing I love about your book. It's not only a memoir, a story of your life. It integrates in there in a beautiful way. It's a wonderful weave of, of okay. information of uh, the, the science behind what happens when alcohol is placed into that type of brain that has gone through not only trauma, but I think the way you like to put it, you've had a brain injury. Yes. Um, yes. And that is huge. What yes, happens and, inside and, there when that happens? Well, and that was huge for me to understand that too. And it was so de-shaming because, you oh. know, even though, you know, like, even though in AA they talk about, you know, you know, alcoholism is a disease, it's not your fault. And, you know, it's your, your responsibility to manage it. There's still, you still feel like there's something wrong with you or that you're, you're broken or something. But what I learned I mean, oh my God, this one book I read by Judith Grizel, who's a neuroscientist, who's also in recovery. She starts talking about how the the brains of children that were raised in, uh, you know, alcoholic or, or, you know, with severely dysfunctional families, on average have 50% less beta endorphins in them, which is the feel good well-being, uh, you know, natural uh, neurotransmitters. And so then it was like, oh, my God, no wonder it felt like, you know, the alcohol in the pot was like an elixir sent down from the gods. <laughs> I was like, it was shoring up my deficits. And, um, and, and, and that was the other huge aha for me uh, learning about all of this was all of these years thinking there was something wrong. I was weak. I was a failure because of all this addiction stuff and realizing that no, Mary, you were not playing on an even playing field with people that did not have trauma. You're just not. I mean, you know, you give somebody with one or zero ace, whatever adversity or trauma as a child compared to someone like me or, or other people like me, and they're going to have a completely different response to a drug, uh, alcohol, or other, whatever their behavior or substance of choice is, because there's a really good saying, Benjamin Franklin saying, uh, we know the, the worth of water when the well is dry. Oh. And I had no idea my metaphorical well was dry. So it's like the difference between, you know, being totally parched from being out on a hike for hours and being out of water. So me get, being given a glass of water and then you getting a glass of water and you've been drinking water all day. Of course, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, this is like. Enough. Yeah. And so just seeing the science behind that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And and, and it was so such a relief and it made so much sense. And, and that was another huge part of the healing. And they, they call it in trauma healing, um, gaining a, co a, a coherent narrative, which is. Getting gaining an understanding of what happened to you and how it's impacted you as you've grown up into an adult and doing so through a compassionate lens. So to me, that's a huge piece of, of the healing is just going, oh, my God, this was not my fault. I'm not bad or broken. And uh, and then learning I could heal. So. Wow.
Fantastic. I tell you what, we're going to take our only break. It's going to be about a minute and 10 seconds, nothing very long. If you want to get involved tonight, 888-627-6008. When we come back, Mary, I want to drill in a little bit deeper. Uh, I want to talk about uh, AA and what AA really meant to you. I want to get into ACEs. I want to get into shame and guilt. And I have about 67 other pages of notes that I want to get into. (laughs) But we're going to do that right after our only commercial break. And hang with us. Uh, Get on Facebook. Uh, Shattered by the Darkness, too, if you have a comment or a question. We'll be right back. From HCI Publishing, that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It!, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back to the program. I tell you what, my my phone texts are going kind of crazy on you tonight, so that's a good thing. I do have a question in here from sure. a Jan from Orlando, and she's asking. Uh, first of all, she's thanking you for your honesty and your openness, and she is applauding that. And she's asking uh, Mary, um, very good. When did you first realize that food was an issue for you, and that that was what you were addicted to basically is what she's asking um well as a child I you know my mom took me to my first Weight Watchers meeting when I was about 11 or something and I was so ashamed because I was the only child in the room um so I mean having that there became a, a constant focus on me and my weight with my family um so I knew that I had a problem with food. Uh, I would say by the time I was seven, eight, and uh, but again, I always thought it was a calories in, calories out, willpower thing, and that was what my parents believed. And you know, you know, just you know, have fruit instead of candy, and not you know, not realizing the elephant in the room, which is this raging alcoholic mom, a dad that's leaving and having an affair, and. Um, they did, did not have the psychological awareness. So, so, you know, as a child, I just thought it was me. I, I, there was just something wrong or bad about me because I could not seem to rein in my compulsive need to soothe myself with food. And then as I became a teenager, it kept on going. And, um, and then even again, it wasn't until I was, I had gotten sober, uh, in when I was 27 years old and, started reading books about recovery and uh, learning that, oh, okay, so my whole thing of food has been just a way to numb myself or soothe myself. 
And that's when I started going to OA. And, and even though OA didn't ultimately help me maintain a healthy weight for the long term, it did help me put together why, uh, how I was using food as medication um, and, uh, and help me put together a food plan and, uh, you know, just hang around people that are more health oriented and that sort of thing. What kind of extra burden did gaining weight as a as a child uh, place on you as far as were you bullied in school? Were you harassed by your friends? Did you have friends? Did it affect relationships? Yeah. Of course, it had to. How did that add to the, the pain and the hurt of what yes. you had gone through as your child, as a child? Well, bullying, I think, was equally as painful as being bullied as being an overweight kid was equally as painful as dealing with what was going on with my mom and dad. Uh, you know, here you are, you know, whatever, six years old, seven years old, second, third grade, and hearing these kids calling you these horrible names and shaming you publicly. And um, it's like, you you know, when you're that young, you can't help but feel like there, there's got to be something terribly wrong with me for these kids to feel the need to to tell me how, you know, gross I look or how ugly or fat I am. And then, um, uh, so it totally hurt my self-esteem. It made me have, I think it really contributed to my, you know, my developing an anxiety disorder on top of the stuff that was going on at home. When I literally, when I would like go onto the schoolyard at school, I would like tense up and become hypervigilant because I was like bracing for when I was gonna be attacked basically. And back then there wasn't like the bullying awareness that there is now. I would come home and my mom, I'd tell my mom I'd be crying and she'd be, she'd be compassionate and everything, but she'd say, well, you know, you just have to say to yourself, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And I'm like, wait, these names have hurt me more than anything has ever hurt me. And so now that I am aware of what, you know, healthy emotional attunement is, I realized that what I really needed was a parent that could protect me and go to that school and say, look, you know, this is happening. I want it to stop. And, uh, but that, that never happened. So I just had to, you know, just hide out and be on the alert. And yeah. And so it really hurt my self-esteem and, you know, actually even to till today, I mean, even though I, I'm at a normal weight, I, you know, I can still relate to how deep, the feeling of feeling undesirable and that there's something inherently wrong with me. Um, yeah. So. So trauma can happen in several different ways. So not only experiencing the listening and hearing the berating of the anger and the rage that was going on in the house, but when a parent doesn't respond in a proper mode, it can right. cause trauma on that side and yes. that's simply probably the definition of neglect. Uh, and that causes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, like, like my parent um, didn't protect me. I was talking earlier about because my mom would drive us around while she was drunk. Well, that was one form of not protecting me, but not protecting me from physical or emotional abuse at school. You know, I, and I didn't get physically abused, but I was horribly emotionally abused. And, um, and so, yeah, and it's, uh, it, I mean, we hear all kinds of stories, you know, about people killing themselves because of bullying at school. It's it's horrific, especially at such a young developmental age when you're really uh, your personality, your identity is forming to feel like there's something so inherently repulsive about you. 
um, it's just it's just a tragedy. How do you deal with that now, Mary? Does has over the years uh, going through with what you went through? Um, how's that damaged your ability to have good relationships and being able to trust people? Has that well, been an issue? Well, that's a great that's question great. because I. One of the things that I talk about in the book is another huge aha epiphany moment from reading The Body Keeps the Score and other books on childhood trauma. Uh, when I saw the sentence, childhood trauma is relational trauma. I'm like, mm. oh my God. And I'm like, okay. So it helped explain why maintaining long-term friendships were so hard for me. And also the difficulty I had in my romantic relationships. And the reason why it's relational trauma is because it happens in the context of close relationships where you're supposed to feel safe and seen and, you know, and heard. And instead you feel afraid, you feel like you're going to be attacked. And, and when I thought about it, you know, I witnessed my mother emotionally abusing my father for all these years and also shaming me. And I was emotionally abused from the kids at school. And then, you know, so the point is, is what do those all have in common is that people were hurting me. And so what I learned about was relational trauma is it's not just a psychological thing. It's a nervous system trauma response thing. So I remember being in my thirties and this after I've been in recovery for years and going, why don't I have more friends? You know, yeah. what, what's up with that? I love people. And yet I just couldn't seem to maintain my friendships. And um, what I learned is that when you have unhealed trauma, close relationships, conflict, especially I witnessed chronic conflict between my parents that never got resolved. And so whenever conflict would come up in my friendships, instead of like just having the conversation that was difficult, like, you know, saying something like whatever, you know, whatever behavior they were doing was bothering me or it was so terrifying for me that instead of confronting what was bothering me in my friendships, I would just slowly pull away until the friendship would die. And so, um, and also, I also noticed that when new people would come into my life, if there was a potential for a close friendship, I automatically, and now I understand it, but I would automatically first think, okay, how emotionally healthy are they? Are they going to drain you know, blame or shame me because that's what my mom did. Yeah. And so, and so you have this worldview and this was the huge aha moment was I had this worldview of people aren't safe and I didn't even know it. I didn't know I had that worldview. And so it was operating in my nervous system. It was operating, operating in my relationships. And so once I understood that and started uh, doing what, the, or uh, implementing these practices that are designed to help you have corrective uh, relational experiences in other words where you 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 go into a relationship situation where you might not have before and tell the truth and get a, a you know the person is open to listening to your feedback and, and and that sort of thing and so now I've uh now I've got great friends especially in the trauma you know recovery field and I feel safe with people and when I go to parties I used to have a lot of social anxiety so now I, I recognize I can feel when my body starts getting activated and hyper aroused. And typically what happens is I want to go hit the snack table 
or I want to scroll through my phone, or I want to go to the bathroom or whatever, because I'm anxious because I'm having a trauma response. And now I understand that and I'm able to work with it. And, um, and it, it's made all the difference in the world, just, you know, and I'm able to talk myself through Mary, you, you know, you're not a little girl with really unsafe people. You can protect yourself and um, let's, let's, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt that they are safe until they prove otherwise, you know, because my brain will want to tell me that they're not safe because that's what I was raised in. And that's, that's what happens when you have a trauma response. And so, um, yeah, so relational and to me, I, if, if, if there's any symptom of unhealed childhood trauma for someone, it's difficulty with close relationships because it's relational trauma. And that's why so many of us so sadly either stay in relationships that are really unhealthy or toxic or avoid them completely because it's, it's the yeah. only way they can manage their nervous system. And, you know, they have pets and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the other things I've learned through this journey is connection with other people isn't just a nice to have. It's like air and water for us as human beings. We really do need human contact. We need close, safe relationships to thrive and, and to, you know, and so I've, um, you know, I'm really one of the great, you know, things from my trauma healing is I've been in a long-term relationship with my partner, Maria. I've got several really close friends in the trauma recovery world who I feel safe with. And as you sh shared earlier about boundaries, I learned a lot about boundaries <laughs> in Codependence Anonymous. And uh, my mom, I, I kind of joke, my mom, you know, taught me, uh, gave me the, the, the grit for a PhD in boundaries because <laughs> I had to set a lot of boundaries with her. And, um, you know, when you have, when you feel safe in your ability to say, no, this is not okay, you can let more people in. But if you don't feel safe in that ability, you can't. So, um, yeah, I, it, it, relational trauma healing is really important. And um, that's a lot of what I cover in my book because it's so important. And it's such, it, I think it's one of the, I think the number one tragedy of, of childhood trauma is how, unless you understand it and recognize it and get the support you need, you can, a lot of us go through life extremely lonely, extremely depressed, and feeling like there's something inherently wrong or broken about us because we can't seem to do relationships. And and yet, we're always going to long for that, whether we want to or not. It's just the way we're, we're wired. So, Yeah, and the relational uh, issue is, is huge because you do. You end up being almost 60 years old and wondering, why am I alone? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did. Did you ever have such low self-esteem uh, that you would look in the mirror and go, "I can't believe what I'm even looking at. I'm, I'm a monster." Because I, well, I still deal with that sometimes. I still have that low self-esteem, and it's so hard some days to look in the mirror. Well, you know, I know for for me, when especially when I was severely obese, I used to weigh over 300 pounds. Um, I was not only I didn't even look at them. I, I wouldn't. Need, I would avoid mirrors because I just mm -hmm. didn't want to feel the shame of seeing myself. But I, I had shame of even being seen in public, and so, um, uh, you know, that that's the other tragedy of, of of trauma is there's this feeling of of just being undesirable. Uh, there's something wrong with you. You're either stupid or or bad or you know just people once they get to know you they'll you know run. 
And, and that's such a tragedy because first of all, none of this was our fault. You know, we, we you know, it, we, 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 we didn't ask to be traumatized. And so, um, yeah. and, and the other thing I like to talk about in my book too, is, is this is not about blaming parents. I mean, at the same time, it's not to minimize what our parents did because a lot of the things that parents have done to us, done to us have been horrific. What the main focus that I'm looking at in my book is until we recognize what happened to us, we can't heal what we don't see. And so, so many times I have a whole, I think 13 or 12 reasons why people don't recognize their own or others tra trauma. There's so much energy in our culture about never questioning your parents, uh, how they raised you. And, um, you know, it's sort of like if you look at a plant and, and you recognize that, okay, the reason this plant is dying or is sick is because it's not getting what it needs. It's not getting the right water, sunlight, soil, whatever. You know, you don't judge, you know, the, the plant or whatever. The same goes for the human organism. We have essential needs. And when they don't get met, we're going to get sick. We're going to die early. We're going to suffer. And so, um, and again, parents can only parent to the degree that they were parented. And so unless, you know, your parents get on a healing track, they're, they're just can't help but parent you the way they were parented. And my mother's mother was an orphan, you know. And, yeah, so um, chances are your parents had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and again, it's, it, it's important to recognize, it's not to excuse what happened. It's not to feel the, the anger and the, uh, the sadness and the grief because that's so important for your healing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a line that you have to kind of navigate when you get into trauma healing. But I think a lot of the reasons people don't heal trauma or even recognize they have it is because they feel like they're going to be victim shamed. Like, oh, well, you're just trying to blame your childhood on your problems. You're not taking responsibility for your life. And, and the way I look at that, it's like, okay, well, if, you know, if I had a, a traumatic brain injury, you know, would I, and but I look at like, I'm, you know, and, and I had all these deficits because of it. I wouldn't look at, I was trying to blame, you know, my parents, obviously something happened to me. I was injured and, and um, you know, there's a great movie, the, uh, the Daryl Hammond story. Oh um, yeah. I love that. Up. Yeah. Yes. And the SNL comedian, Daryl Hammond, and he had horrific trauma. And this one scene that was so powerful for me, his psychiatrist says to him, I don't want you to call what you have mental illness. I want you to call it mental injury. And it was like, oh my God, you know, it, because again, we take it on like it's our fault. We, or there, we're defective or something bad about us. And you would never, you know, do that with somebody that was injured. And so, yeah, it's so important to, to recognize that, you know, if, it's like a neurological and an emotional injury. And until you get the right treatment, you're not going to be able to heal. Yeah. We only, we only have about a minute or two left. Mary, I knew the hour would go by fast. I, I knew uh, with this much information in the book, all I was going to have to do is say, Hey, good evening, Mary. And you're going to take <laughs> off running. I love that. Especially when you're a, a keynote speaker and a master trader and, and a certified life coach and all that, that's just a natural thing. What, what would you like for people to, in the last minute we have, what would you like for people to be able to get out of this after they read the book, they close it at the last page, and they go, wow, what would you want that reaction to be? Okay, sure. Well, definitely, I want people to realize that they're not alone. Yes. It's not your fault. You're not mm -hmm. bad or broken. And you can heal. 
And and you do need to take the initiative to do so. And that's why I've included an entire complex PTSD workbook in, in the book, at the, the third section, as well as a recovery uh, guide on how to you know, deal with addictions with alcohol, drugs, food, or any other behavioral addictions. And not to shame ourselves for addictions, but just to recognize that they're our best attempt to regulate a body, brain, and mind that's been really impacted by trauma. And and you can do it. That's, you know, that's what recovery is about. Yeah. I'll tell you what. I would recommend every counselor, every teacher, every minister, every I can go right on down through all, my whole list of every <laughs> to have multiple copies of this book. Because if you're counseling somebody, you have a friend that's just gone through some stuff in their childhood and you don't know what to say, hand them this book about Mary's life because it's not going to just tell you because you don't go into that much. You go it's wonderfully mixed. And then you go into ACEs, go into shame and guilt. You go into this relational issues. You go into so many other things. And it's like, mm -hmm. wow, that whole chapter is good. Well, uh, and really, really quick. I just want to mention something is that I had been in therapy several times for several decades and not one of my therapists ever mentioned that I had the classic symptoms of complex PTSD or whatever you want to call it. And, and that was another reason I wrote the book is because most therapists are not trained to recognize trauma unless it's sexual or physical abuse. And so, you know, um, yeah. Great point. Great point. Do you have a copy of the book in front of you? I do. Uh, sit, sit, show that. And there it is. It's not about food, drugs, or alcohol. It's, it's about healing complex PTSD by Mary Giuliani. And you can get that. You prefer them to... Uh, Get this on Amazon, Mary? Is that the yeah, best way Amazon, for you? Yeah, Amazon is a great place to get it. In fact, Amazon right now is running a 99-cent special on the Kindle version. So, I mean, you know, yeah, get I'll tell it. you what, the, the pictures uh, that you have on there from your, childhood. your childhood yes. and the challenges with weight were very uh, courageous of you. I appreciate you mm -hmm. doing that and open and honesty and transparent. And then the... Uh, brain scans and uh, uh there's so many good things in there uh okay, you want to make sure the kindle edition was wonderful but i'm sure the hard copy is even well, better yeah. but, the yeah. hard copy is better in the sense that all of the the worksheets and stuff like that are right in the book um but uh yeah i mean it's everybody deserves to understand what happened to them and get the right support they can to heal because Without healing, we're going to struggle, and there's no reason, you know, it's unnecessary suffering, and that's yeah. why I wanted to write this book. Mary, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Anytime you want to come back, because I I only got through three pages of okay, all this I'd paperwork. Okay, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love, love to have to. you back, and good luck, and thank I you. just know it's going to stay on that bestseller list for a yeah. very, very, very long well, yeah. time. Well, yeah, it's Amazon.com, and really quick, if you don't mind, my website is Mary Giuliani, G-I-U-L-I-A-N-I.net. There's all kinds Fantastic. of stuff up there, too. Okay? Yeah, it is. There's a lot of great stuff on there, a lot of information. Thank you so much, Mary, for being with Bye. us. Bye. Okay, blessings. We like to close every program each week to let you know that no matter what you have gone through, whether it is something that happened to you all the way back to your childhood and you can't figure out when you're middle age or above what's going on with me, why everything going the hell in the handbasket, let me tell you what. Um, don't give up. There's always hope. Start finding out, getting books like this and reading them and get educate yourself, but never give up on that one word that I love is our foundation of our program. There's always hope. Join us right here next week 
for another edition of uh, Breaking the Silence. And we'd love to have you be here with us. And you don't want to miss next week's program. But when you get off, get on Amazon right now and order Mary's book. God bless you. Have a great week. And we will see you soon. Good night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence. Thank you.